right. Well, uh, the tradition, I guess, on the podcast is to always start off just asking about coffee habits or um, if you don't like coffee, uh, if there's a different stimulating beverage or non-stimulating beverage that you feel uh, any affinity towards. Well, I do love coffee, but I'm a bit I'm a bit snobby and picky about it. Okay. And uh, when I have good coffee that I like, I'll you know try to get it nice and fresh, freshly roasted, more or less, which is kind of tough sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have like a roasting place around here that I uh, frequent. And then you know I use the AeroPress. However, a couple months ago, I just decided I was tired of being disappointed by my coffee, <laughs> and I just started taking caffeine pills. So, oh, dang. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like those caffeine pills are something I've never wanted to explore because there's no culinary side to it. But like at the same time, who, who cares? Right. I mean, it does sound like unhealthy or weird or something, but... You know, you pop a pill, it's the exact same amount of yeah. caffeine. and It's quantified. It's quantified. I can <laughs> take take one and just hop on my bike and get out of the house. Nice. So there's no, no cleanup or anything. Do you do like the uh, like no-dose or something? Or is it the, uh, I think that's like a brand. Or is it like smart caffeine, like the theanine and caffeine? Nah, it's just, uh, okay. you know. <laughs> just anhydrous. <laughs> it just, it's just caffeine. Beautiful. Um, I have had caffeine with like uh, some kind of B vitamin or something in it. But mm -hmm. I, cool. Well, it seems to get the job done. Uh, what What is tasty coffee to you, or like what? How? In what way are you snobby about it? Uh, just when it's. I support your snobbery. <laughs> I mean, back when I lived in California, I used to just go to Pete's, uh, grind it there sometimes put my face to the bag and feel the shiver down my spine. Mm -hmm. um, I like, I remember liking Garuda a lot, sort of, um, I don't know, South Asian, darker, earthy, something, something mm -hmm. earthy. Nice. I have roasted my own coffee several times and enjoyed that. That's just a fun little project. You can do it with a popcorn popper, like an air popper. Nice. Cool. It uh, kind of takes a while because you have to do like a quarter ounce at a or you know some small amount mm -hmm. for each little batch. But it's a fun thing to do. And you know, I also got a got a a better idea of how it evolves after you roast it because it doesn't mm -hmm. smell or taste great or anything right after you roast it. But within that like twelve uh, twenty four hour time frame, it really starts to come to life. Yeah, um, this guy, uh, Scott Rayo, who is like my favorite coffee head, uh, he has a very, very specific sort of like data driven way of roasting coffee that you might uh, want to like read about on his blog and stuff where it's like, you know, you want to have these different curves align uh, with like oh, yeah. rate of rise. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, well, now that I know who you are in terms of coffee, um, I suppose we can talk about real things. Um, so I guess the way I was thinking about the conversation going is like, uh, sort of through your career of education, like starting with guitar stuff and Cal Arts, moving to math, sort of like applied math in music, and then uh, what you're currently doing in neuroscience. Sound cool to you? Sure. Um, I can just give a quick biographical sketch, I suppose. Yeah. Which is that I grew up mostly in Southern California, 
and got really into guitar in high school. And I went and saw Miroslav Tadic uh, play a solo concert at uh, Loyola Marymount once. And I was just so blown away. I was like, I got to go study with this guy. He's just incredible. He improvised 80% of that show. And I was just so blown away. And so I set my sights on that and ended up going. That's where So I did my BFA there uh, starting in, I think, 2003. And um, 2004, that's where I met our mutual friend, Mike Kaderka, when he was um, working on his master's. And we, uh, we hit it off. We were roommates for a while. We, he taught me a lot about classical guitar. I, mm-hmm. I had really been more of a jazz-focused player, but one of the great things about CalArts is that I could just study anything. I studied North Indian classical music quite a lot my first year. Um, started getting into more avant-garde jazz and also classical, especially contemporary classical composition and was, was writing for classical guitar. And also, um, when I was living with Mike, we, I was taking a music history class and finding it kind of dull. Mm-hmm. And he really turned, <laughs> he, he really brought some life to it. And we ended up renting uh, a couple of gamba, nice. feel of the gamba from the school. And we would just open my music history textbook to some random medieval thing and sight read it badly, I'm sure, because I'm not, a, I don't know how to bow an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> But it really uh, captured me. Uh, played continuo in an opera and really enjoyed that because that was kind of like being in jazz. You right. got this figured bass thing and you're just kind of improvising over the changes, more or less. And I, I also really like accompanying singers. Um, <clears throat> okay, and then sort of near the end of that period, I started getting more into just quote-unquote regular by the way quote-unquote that's <laughs> weird right like you would say quote regular unquote <laughs> I, I, it's always bothered me a little bit but you know what i mean yeah <laughs> <clears throat> so i ended up getting into more songwriting i got obsessed with brian wilson and okay. pet sounds and other various songwriters that are brilliant, like Towns Van Zandt and uh, Joni Mitchell, and all kinds of stuff. And sort of put my mind to thinking about that stuff a lot more, uh, both just individual songs, but I had charted out my favorite albums in terms of tempi and keys and, you know, mm-hmm. really kind of getting into the, the weeds nice. of how, yeah. how does an album work as a whole and things like that. And so for a few years, I was just your typical starving artist, bouncing around, teaching middle schoolers, here comes the sun and smoke on the water, depending on their (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, motivation level. Um, And I enjoyed that. And I I like teaching, especially, well, exclusively when they're interested and motivated. Otherwise, I'm just not really that interested in trying to... Right. Yeah. Say, did you practice? Yeah. I would just talk to them about other stuff because they're kids. They right. just want to talk and 
just discover the world. And uh, I still teach, but I'm teaching undergraduates in neuroscience now, and actually just did uh, a six-week teaching thing with high school students, which I really enjoyed as well. Just really enthusiastic. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I went home to visit my parents in northern Michigan one winter, and I was just like, God, this is gorgeous, just quiet snow. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of getting fed up with Los Angeles a little bit, sitting in traffic. It was hot. Mm -hmm. um, lived out of my van for a while, which was a fun little adventure. Um, but I was ready to be done mm -hmm. and figure out something else to do. Whether or not it was music, I just was ready for a new chapter. Um, so I moved to Northern Michigan outside of Traverse City uh, by a weird coincidence. Mike Durka also ended up there teaching at Interlochen, which mm -hmm. was, we just seemed to be crossing paths. Uh, and I was kind of trying to scrounge up some lessons here and there and just see what I could do. But mostly I was just thinking about how I didn't want to be teaching smoke on the water when I was 50. Right. And so I just like, oh, I, I've always loved lots of things and I've been really into the outdoors. And I thought, oh, maybe I can find some kind of outdoorsy biology centric kind of job. So I started going to community college up there intending to do biology and biologists have to take calculus. And uh, so I taught myself enough to test into the calculus courses. And once I was there, I just got the bug and thought, oh, this is so cool. This is and physics too. And so when I ended up transferring to University of Michigan to, to finish up, I wasn't sure if I was going to do biology or math. Um, I took a genetics class and a linear algebra class. The genetics class just, it just, it wasn't clicking for me. Like knowledge was going in one ear and out the other. Uh, as fascinating as I as I found it, the experience was more stressful <laughs> than I had hoped. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, my linear algebra class, which was like a theoretical linear algebra class, they use it to sort of test you out to see if you want to be a math major because it's all about proofs and logic. And I just realized this is what I like spending my time doing. And I'm probably going to be doing a lot of homework and study. So I just <laughs> went that way. Fortunately, there was a mathematical biology uh, sub-concentration, so I did that. And while I was there, always been interested in the brain and research. So I got a couple of research mentors, and one of them's a mathematician, one's a physicist, uh, Victoria Booth and Michalski. Shout out! I'm sure, they'll hear this. Um, <laughs> and I learned how to code. I was simulating populations of neurons just to see. You know how they synchronize, how they desynchronize, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And had a great experience, and ultimately decided to go to grad school. So I applied to <clears throat> Boston University, which is where I am now, working on my. I'm about to go into my sixth year, or a PhD in neuroscience, technically computational neuroscience, but that's sort of a sub uh, concentration. Nice. And uh, now that I, I came in with all this math and computer chops, and now I'm uh, 
working with mice all the time, which is also <laughs> something I didn't expect to see, see myself doing, becoming an experimentalist. Would you rather work with Mike or mice? <laughs> <laughs> Mike. hundred <laughs> percent. Cool. Uh, so when you were talking about the like you know going through albums and like figuring out the like times and durations and everything that's something that is all too familiar with me like um i, I went through this big janet jackson phase once and i was going through her stuff and analyzing it down to the millisecond and then trying to abstract out whatever i could and then just replace it with my very much not janet, janet jackson stuff so uh, <laughs> I'm i'm glad to know that you are like you know considering things like how they work as a whole uh did you like get any sort of insight or end up with any like sense of like what the ingredients are for like an elegant album like how long is the perfect album or how many songs like well they all follow the golden ratio perfectly (laughs) (laughs) um you know i don't know that i found a unifying theory Mm -hmm. i mostly just wanted to i think it did inform me i did make an album myself and uh, you know, friends played on it and it was just a really great experience for me. And, mm-hmm. and I think what I kind of took from it was, or took from studying albums is, is, is going to sound kind of trite or obvious, but just trying to balance having it be a unified whole but at the same time, not uniform. Mm-hmm. Songs have their own individual character, their own arrangements, their own tempi and keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when I was putting together my own music, I was pretty conscious of trying to find that balance and make it sort of a complete story, beginning mm-hmm. to end, more or less. Um, so, hmm. Yeah, I feel like just having a beginning and middle and end is like, that's already like enough of a challenge, but you know, to make it have any sort of elegance beyond that or whatever, like that's a, yeah. For sure. And I also really enjoy when you get into an album and I'm an album guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you think about the Beatles and especially their later albums, you hear lines, quotes, ideas that kind of resurface and you, you just, you're kind of piecing it together. You, you feel like you're reading a book mm-hmm. because ideas and themes keep resurfacing. And I know some of that's intentional and some of that's also just when you're writing a bunch of songs, there's only so many things that you're thinking about <laughs> and trying to express. And so you're gonna, themes are just going to naturally start, mm-hmm. start, uh, surfacing in different places but those are other things like little uh light motifs that might appear here and there mm-hmm. I, I love i'm a huge counterpoint fan so i love just inserting little things that probably <laughs> nobody will ever know but when i listen to it i'm like yeah that that was this other theme but i ran it backwards and whatever and, mm-hmm. uh, or this one's stretched out in time by two and just, uh, you know kind of geeky totally uh, canonical things sure yeah and i don't know if it penetrates or not but i enjoy it Mm -hmm. and it's really i made for myself so nice Um, and i'm starting to get back into playing more but it's uh 
it's a little difficult for me to be really creative in a way that satisfies me without doing it all the time. Totally. Yeah. Because if I just do it an hour here and there, I'm kind of just going to repeat the grooves in my brain. I'm just going to be moving down the grooves in my brain. I'm not breaking it. And I, I don't really want to do that. I, I'm like looking for, looking for some new shoot, like just some comedy electronica or something, <laughs> like whatever it is, just something new and fun and different is uh, what I, what I like to do and not repeat myself. I feel like uh, the last time we talked, I think you broke the seal by saying orthogonal, and uh, I, that's on my like bingo card, uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, like catchy words to say. But I guess like yeah, like I my current thing is to try to always disrupt where I'm going and like do entirely novel stuff as often as possible. But that's like a huge chore uh, yeah, to you sure. know, maintain. Um, I mean, it's also such a pleasure <laughs> if you're true, just the yeah. kind of person that loves to explore i mean there's nothing better at the same time you're always confronted with the fact that you suck at something (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i enjoy sucking at stuff it's it's like being a kid again kids Mm -hmm. suck at everything and they don't they don't mind because they're just used to it and i think as adults we once you start having competency in some area you start to feel like that should be the norm for everything and you get frustrated and quit. But I, I enjoy learning new things and stinking at them. And mm-hmm. yeah. So, and that's always been sort of my strength and weakness probably because as I'm a jack of all trades, mm. a generalist, we say uh, uh, a generalist. That's good. <laughs> do you have Put any favorite, uh, do you have any favorite uh, guitarists or like uh, composers besides the ones that you've mentioned? Like any that you sort of like, you know, Desert Island guitarist. <laughs> Ooh. I'm trying to figure out where like Venn diagram uh, overlaps in terms of guitar interests. Yeah, honestly. I mean, I know Miroslav and it, we talked about Dushan briefly. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Nels Klein. Okay. And. Nice. Um, Check the other weirdos like, you know, Henry Kaiser or like uh, sort of like these more like uh you know Derek Bailey yeah yeah I I feel like it I kind of started gravitating away from guitarists mm-hmm. in general which I think is pretty common for a lot of people totally especially when you're into jazz you start out and you're seeking out all your jazz heroes of your on your instrument and then you're like John Coltrane amazing you yeah. know <laughs> you just so I feel like <clears throat> Yeah, these are people that I love, guitarists, but I probably, I don't really have a North Star or several of them probably anymore. It's, yeah, um, I mean, if you say train as your answer, that's fine by me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that can override it. I mean, West like, Montgomery. There we go. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, I got one. <laughs> yeah, I feel like guitarists love to be obsessed with their instrument in particular, and uh, I've, yeah, I've always sort of thought that it was a dumb instrument <laughs> which you know mike and i talked a lot about about just like the tuning and stuff so um i mean i guess we should get into that sort of uh so you know the guitarist tuning has always pissed me off and so it sounds like you and mike are attacking this problem uh with you know your replaceable fret- fretboards like the magnetized fretboards at microtone so um what exactly have you been like up to in your work there and uh, like, what does a day of microtone stuff look like for you? 
Oh, well, so just, I guess, a brief primer is that, as you mentioned, we've got this Microtone Guitars uh, venture, and we have thus far classical guitars and steel string guitars, and I'm working on electrics to essentially have a magnetized fretboard and you can slide on and off, or sorry, a magnetized neck, and you can slide on and off different fretboards to work in different tuning systems or no tuning system if you want to play fretless or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a project that Mike, since Mike is an expert in tuning theory, had always been interested in. And since we're both interested in early music, especially in modern tuning system is, it is a modern invention. And it's really cool to go back and just think about, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I love thinking about things that seem like received, like they've always existed. And then you go back and find out that, that that's one of my favorite feelings. <laughs> so that's equal temperament and we just started working together when he was at interlocking i think mostly and i was just starting to learn math and coding and he said well he had been making these 3d designs to print fretboards um, just kind of rudimentary in that 3d printing technology is like you know it, it's a piece of plastic it's cool. It's awesome. But he had also been, there's just so many, there are several free parameters when you're designing a fretboard just in terms of the guitar you're using, the tuning system and so on. And it could be quite annoying to have to sit there and compute the, where the fret goes for all these things. Mm -hmm. So he's like, Hey, do you want to try to, I don't know, see if you can do this in code, yeah, absolutely. I, I love, I'm always down for some kind of uh, side project. Mm -hmm. And we kind of just bounced that sort of stuff back and forth for a couple of years until I got a little more serious. And now it's much more sophisticated operation, but my central role has pretty much always been just creating code that spits out designs that the CNC machine can read. Mm -hmm. Mike will say, Here's the parameters. Here's the tuning system. My code will read that in, create the design, send it out. More recently, I built a tuning, we're working on a tuning app so that users can uh, just you know, dial up on their phone. So that they can pull up the app on their phone and it's got your fretboards that you own. And you know, so you can tune your open strings and all that. Um, so that's something that I ha had a lot of fun doing, just learning new algorithms to do this and sort of tweaking them and trying to optimize them for our particular purposes. So in short, I feel like most of the CNC stuff is pretty much where it needs to be. I don't know that I'm going to be doing too much work on that aspect, at least in the short term. And yeah, they're little tweaks. So I guess the day in the life would be like Mike pestering me for way too long because I'll like get busy and say, oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then it'll be some, for some little feature like, oh, can I, I want to be able to use this uh, specification. Can you alter your code a little bit? So for me, it's usually just uh, relatively minor revisions on the code that I've written and push it you'll pull it and <clears throat> so that's pretty typical getting this tuning app going is something my brother's actually 
helping out with. And he is more of like a user interface kind of guy. And I'm more of like a algorithms kind of guy. Gotcha. And I don't really have the patience or aesthetic, whatever, to, to design something that's beautiful and whatever. I, I'm just more, mm-hmm. I don't know, in, in another realm, I suppose. Um, another domain, I should say. For these fretboard algorithms, uh, can you walk me through a little bit of what that would look like? Uh, because I mean, like, I, I understand a little bit about like, you know, like uh, the logarithmic scale and like, you know, the ratio being proportional between pitches and all that. Um, I'm not sure, like, I'm curious how um, something would happen, you know, differently with different tuning systems, like what would change about the code? And uh, yeah, I mean, how do you figure out that placement? Um, <clears throat> There's a so, you know, easy to digest way to say it. Sure, a scale can just be defined as essentially the fraction each note in a scale, scale degree, can be defined as a fraction between octaves. So we say just by convention, there's 1,200 cents in an octave, C-E-N-T-S. And right in, in equal temperament, you would say zero cents is your starting pitch, then 100 cents, 200 cents, and so on. That's how you get your 12 pitches. Uh, if you have some, some other tuning system, quarter column mean tone or whatever, you just define those steps as different cent values. Okay, so now you've got a different fraction of your way up the octave. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about um, the length of a string from the, <clears throat> from the nut to the bridge, you just have to map those cent values. Cent values kind of exist on a, it's a linearization of way we think of frequency okay octaves double Mm -hmm. in frequency every time and when you think of sense it just sort of flattens that out for you Um, and then you have to sort of do the inverse on a fretboard where halfway up uh between the nut and the bridge that's one octave Uh, have that again so you're Mm -hmm. you're now three quarters the way up that's two octaves so you just basically have to map these scent values onto locations along this, this line. It's, it's a fairly simple just transformation. Once you get it down, it's it's there and you just run the code. Uh, when you like have figured out where to put all the frets and you put them down, uh, do you, I mean, like if you just do it according to whatever you know placement you've mapped it to, is there like a bunch of fine tuning, no pun intended, beyond that to like tighten it up like you know like you'll be like this is the correct thing but it has to be scooched over a tad sometimes there's a tiny bit of scooching in order to um so let's say you've got a fret that's going to extend across multiple strings or it ought to mm-hmm. uh, there's no sense in making a fret that just goes over one string and then you have another fret right next to it that's a thousandth of a millimeter, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, up four. So you might as well just take the average of those two lengths and extend the fret all the way across, and there's no no harm there. So there are tolerances. Um, say, you know, I, I'm willing to to move these frets, take the average length or whatever, insofar as it doesn't alter the the target pitch from beyond like a few cents or whatever it is. I don't remember the exact. Mm-hmm. parameter there 
so yeah, there, there's stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, I mean, these tuning systems, I think are largely like, I mean, it seems, sounds like there are a bunch of historical ones and, uh, I'm curious if you've ever done anything like, you know, 13 tone equal temperament or something like that, or like just some like ugly prime number, um, uh, <laughs> no such thing as an ugly prime number. Well, yeah, I, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Huh. You know, mostly I just work with the fretboards that Mike gave me for mm -hmm. Christmas. <laughs> and I don't have any really bizarre ones. If I were in Michigan where they're building these things, mm -hmm. I think I would, you know, screw around with some more exotic, weird things. But mm -hmm. right now, since since we're really trying to hammer down the, the core um, tuning systems that we think are going to be most yeah useful to people i think i pretty much just sort of play on those you're being sensible and practical that's right <laughs> that's, that's right a rare uh, instance um so to talk a little bit about math uh you know and uh I, I agree there are no ugly prime numbers but uh i mean i guess would that work at all the same way like you know the way that there's the harmonics like the uh, harmonic series and all that um if you had like a very odd like you know 23 tone equal temperament it, that would screw a lot of stuff up right um well we could chart this out and find how far each of these intervals is from from being in the harmonic series mm. and say oh this is likely to be more dissonant and that that's where an interesting sort of psych psychoacoustical mm. component comes in how complex the rational approximation or something would be to uh, maybe not rational you can do you could do some really weird stuff probably with <laughs> fully irrational oh in steps of e now now i'm thinking about it <laughs> this is my e report um but i'd have to be multiplied by something it's two two point seven cents or whatever right? what is e 2.16 2.7 i can't remember Actually, Euler's number. I read a whole book. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful number. <laughs> I've I've been told um, over drinks by another very enthusiastic person that understands physics and all. So, oh uh, uh, yeah, it's got some really cool properties. Um, it also kind of blew my mind to think about the further you go in math, the more abstract the idea of. Uh, it's almost like less thinking about numbers and more thinking about objects Okay. In, in a way. Like, how do you think of a number that has an infinite number of decimal? It just never repeats. These mm -hmm. decimal places go on forever. I mean, one third, that's pretty, that's not a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but right. something that might be expressed as an infinite series. One over two plus one over three. Plus, I, I don't know. I don't have these um, series memorized, but um, yeah, you just start to think about quantities or uh, I guess it's more abstract mathematical objects. And I think when I started getting into things like E and pi, you start to see them. There's just so many different angles that you can look at them from. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the fun. I love this process of recontextualizing something that seems seems like you understand it. And, but there's always ways that you can revisit it. It seems like 
So I read this cool, I don't know, five page thing by a mathematician about the derivative in calculus. And he lists like 20 something distinct ways to look at it or, or to interpret it. And he talks about how the process of being a professional mathematician is always rediscovering new things about things you've known about for a long time. And that's really exciting to me. I've always really enjoyed that. And I think a lot of people might be a little bit put off when they see calculus for the first time or any kind of more complicated math thing, but you should never think that you're going to just get it the first time you see it. It's going to be a, li a lifelong journey of right. revisiting these things, seeing, seeing new things about it. I love that about math. Hmm. I really, yeah. I mean, like last time we talked, I feel like you admonished me for calling myself garbage at math. And like, <laughs> when it comes down to it, I do spend an awful lot of time, like recreationally on my calculator app, even just like doing like sort of tedious arithmetic, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, I'm, I'm curious about like uh, how you would suggest a musician like find their way into math um, if it's going to be like a huge process of learning. Like, you know, I, I've, I've been trying to learn calculus for a while and I just it, I need like a, a way to get into it and actually like, you know, get some friction and continue with momentum. Yeah, I think it's. <clears throat> Maybe a little tricky because I think everybody's a little bit different. Right. I've always been fairly decent at teaching myself out of books, uh, which is how I kind of got back into math, just textbooks. But I understand that's, I'm also shit at lectures. I, I don't like lectures, almost never. <laughs> I, <laughs> I kind of just stopped going to classes after a while. Just <laughs> like, I, I'll drift out and I'll come back and I miss something. It, it's just too hard to stay in sync sometimes mm -hmm. with lectures. So everybody's got to kind of find their own way. But I think the fact that you like it and are exploring it just goes a long way. I, I was just say probably don't overburden yourself with learning every last detail there's so many details in calculus that i don't remember mm -hmm. and you just you're not going to unless you're a math phd and you're going to be grilled on this stuff for a qualifying exam or something and there's a lot of stuff that i covered and i learned how to compute things but i still haven't gone back to really understand them they're just okay here's another little rant <laughs> is that there's hundred okay what did it take maybe 150 years or more after newton and leibniz and van calculus for there to be a um rigorous way to express these ideas it took so long and yet we expect students to just sort of mm -hmm. absorb it first time right. through it's like these were brilliant, brilliant people. And it took, like, Euler didn't even have the geometric concept of complex numbers that we have now. Mm -hmm. Just because there was some Danish cartographer who was interested in arrows and how, how you might be able to multiply two arrows to come up with a third one. It, it, these things are not supposed to be just something that you 
pick up instantly. Mm-hmm. And I think we kind of do a disservice by neglecting to tell students that these are ideas that they were hard fought. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we've maybe come up with a good pedal, uh, pedagogical way to express them and expose students to them. But anyhow, back from that tangent, I'll just say you could probably just find the areas that are interesting to you mm-hmm. and just try to use them, try to apply them, just play with them. And don't worry about all the other little details that are in the book. And you might, like, once you get a handle on, on some aspect of it, then you might find that it's just much easier to grab on some other thing or, Oh, you, Oh, I get why that's mm-hmm. cool or interesting or important. And I think I also approach it the same way I approach, uh, learning music. I remember I had a ear training teacher. We're just learning intervals or something or chords or trying to pick out, uh, I think it was like in my last year training class, he would just mash his hands on a few handful of random notes and be like, do you hear this uh, minor six in here? And it might be like nested within all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, maybe, but I'm used to hearing it just like root minor six, root, you know. And the idea is like, just try to hear each interval in as many contexts as you can. Just try to look at everything from as many angles as possible. And something about that, your brain will just start to kind of absorb it and recognize it in many different ways. Mm-hmm. I think in math or, or any of these other um, technical areas, it's not so dissimilar. If you just limit yourself to the handful of examples that you see, then you might not be able to, I don't know, fully internalize it. Mm-hmm. You might be able to use it in that particular context, but it's a good idea to try to look at some some problem or idea from as many angles as possible uh, I guess, yeah i uh when mike was talking about the uh tuning app he mentioned autocorrelation and uh you know how he admires how you handle the waveform or something like that uh so i guess that i mean that's very much something that applies to me is like managing waveforms and like i i sort of like i have a little awareness of like you know foyer stuff but um, how how do you handle the waveform that uh, impresses him? <laughs> or uh, I didn't I didn't reinvent the wheel here. I just found a bunch of papers on uh, tuning algorithms and um, just try to find the one that seems most appropriate to our our uses. Mm-hmm. Um, autocorrelation is a fast optimized method that doesn't require a particularly long sample. So it's more useful in real-time processing. There's some other algorithms, zero crossings and so on that would be faster. I know there's some other companies out there that are working on that kind of thing for more like MIDI guitar, where you've got to have Mm -hmm. super fast recognition of pitches Mm -hmm. in order to not have any latency problems in the real-time processing. But we're not quite, we don't really need that. We, we just need something that's like decently responsive while you're trying to tune your guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. 
would you call I don't know it? if I can give a great like quick rundown of autocorrelation or something without pictures. Sure. It's just a hard thing to summon. Is but. it is it fair to say that it's part of machine learning? When it, I was briefly looking it up, and it was like machine learning autocorrelation, but it, it didn't seem like a, a machine learning thing when I first heard about. It, I guess um, I'm no expert in machine learning, but I don't. Cons- I I think it's more of a statistics. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, it, it's not so dissimilar from stuff out of the Fourier world. Fourier world as well. Sliding different um, waveforms against each other, and to sort of, in some, in some way, sort of comparing this waveform against some template. It's, it's just the difference is that now the template is itself. That's why it's autocorrelation. You're comparing a you're comparing a waveform with itself after some lag, some period of time. And so if if you take some chunk of your wave, use that as your template, and sort of slide it along itself hmm. yeah. a different delay. So each one is sort of a delay. Imagine like playing against a delayed signal of yourself. Okay. Um, if that waveform is periodic at say 100 hertz, then when you slide the waveform against along at a period that corresponds to 100 hertz, so uh, one one hundredth of a second delayed, then they ought to look fairly similar. Mm-hmm. That's the idea of periodicity in general. Is that if this thing repeats, if if you have a sine wave, and I slide the sine wave by one period, then it's going to look similar to itself. Okay. Yeah. And so that's basically what how autocorrelation works, mm-hmm. and what you do is you just slide these waveforms against each other or against itself. And at each lag, each amount of delay, you can get a number for how similar it is to itself or the template. And the one that is most similar, you could just say, oh, that's my, that's probably the most significant period in here. And there are, there's, just a, there's a lot of subtleties here and ways that you can optimize it for the guitar or plucked instruments. Um, there's stability problems sometimes where you know, if something is periodic at uh, 100 hertz, it's also periodic at 50 hertz. Right, okay. Am I getting that right? I always have to or do this in reverse. So it, it's easy to mistake the wrong octave for example. Gotcha, yeah. And there's some jumping around in the estimate that you try to smooth out so you're not accidentally saying, oh, this is a, a, a 50 hertz thing as opposed to a 100 hertz thing. Because when you jump down to the 50 hertz thing, the, the temporal or the resolution is different. And so your estimates, you're gonna, even if you're just saying sense off, you would think, what difference does it make what octave I'm looking at? But there are some subtleties there, and when you're when you're also um, you can you can use other techniques to to get sort of super resolution through mm-hmm. through estimation. Interesting. I feel like I sort of understand uh, 
I have a, a general feeling for uh, what you're getting at here, I think. But uh, yeah, maybe it, when I put this out, I'll put some pictures over it and uh, or like put some, you know, uh, like graphs or whatever. Uh, sure, figures. Sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's actually some decent little animations on just the Wikipedia page for convolution and autocorrelation that demonstrate some of these things. So I guess here's my other recommendation for trying to learn math. Mm -hmm. Learn coding. Gotcha. There's not cool. a whole lot that you need in order to just get plotting things that you would just you wouldn't be able to do just by hand or whatever. And so there's a pretty limited and free set of tools and skills that you need to start just trying things, just exploring. It's kind of like your instrument mm -hmm. or a piano or something. You might be a composer or a theorist, but you still going to need a piano, a piano there to just try stuff out and go, oh, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. yeah, just and different so, keyboard. Yeah, <laughs> it's different keyboard. Um, so that's my recommendation. Cool. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, let's see here. So uh, do you have a time limit, by the way? Um, we're getting it up at an hour-ish, but don't want to, you know. Not really. Cool. Uh, well, I guess let's talk a little bit about the uh, neuroscience stuff that you're doing. So um, you're at Boston University, and I know that you're doing, uh, you're working uh, with like optogenetics and stuff a little bit, or is that right? Uh, a little bit. I kind of got a little overextended on projects that are pretty different and haven't done a lot with optogenetics. Um, since sort of refining my focus. So what I do is two photon calcium imaging in uh, live animals, mice. So basically these, these uh, this pond scum <laughs> has had, it was discovered, had this uh, fluorescent molecule and some very smart people figured out how to connect that to some other molecules so that when, for example, in the presence of calcium, um, this, this fluorescent molecule would become activated. When calcium is not there or in lower concentrations, it would unbind and then it would go back to its inactive state. So why that's important is because when a neuron fires, calcium rushes into the cell. And so, when calcium rushes into the cell, it can bind these, this molecule and it is able to fluoresce. When I say able to fluoresce, I just mean you have to stimulate that molecule with some light. It's, just, it's not going to just emit energy it doesn't have. You have gotcha. to in, put some in and if there's any fluorophores that are in the active state, they'll absorb that energy and then re-release it out and you collect that light. So these neurons are genetically modified to express this protein in, say, some say excitatory neurons, or you could do it with inhibitory neurons, or whatever it is that you're looking at. And these so are the opsins, or is that right? Opsins. Um, that would be more like optogenetics. Gotcha. Okay. So an opsin <laughs> is something that is. That's a, a slightly different technology where in response to light, it actually opens 
ion channels in the membrane that allow the, the, the ion channels in a membrane of a neuron open and close in some particular way that makes them fire. That's that's how they fire. Okay. And so what I what I'm looking at primarily it's really just reporting firing. Where okay. instead of forcing it to happen, that's optogenetics. So if for example you could genetically tie channel rhodopsin to dopaminergic neurons. And then you run the fiber down into the dopaminergic area of the brain, whatever, whatever it is, PTA or something. And you're going to say, oh, I wonder if I can make this mouse prefer the left side of its <laughs> environment over the right side just by stimulating its dopaminergic areas. Um, that's, that's like a channel rhodopsin optogenetics thing. It's, gotcha. it's a manipulation rather than just a, a reporting. Okay, gotcha. So there's, there's all kinds of cool stuff in neurophotonics, which is basically just the application of light to studying the brain. It's, it's actually pretty mind-boggling. Uh, just the, the scope and the range, the amount of creativity that goes into uh -huh. to, to these tools. And that's what's so exciting about it. It's, it's evolving so fast mm -hmm. and there are a lot of minds coming from different areas working on these problems. I'm just a user of that stuff. I don't develop it, but um, it's my primary interest is in, is in the brain and not in, in the tools necessarily, but uh, it's, it's a fascinating area and it's just always changing and we're going to get cooler and cooler data. It's imaging deeper and deeper and faster and faster. And all, you know, it's, it's very neat. Nice. Um... Oh, so I guess maybe just to finish up yeah. the quick summary is that essentially you can just replace a bit of the skull with glass. So it's literally a window. And that's how you get the laser light into the brain the stimulus the fluorophores and you can collect the light that comes out of it. And so because the visual cortex is a, is a, it's a pretty accessible area anatomically, that tends to be one of the one of the more studied areas of the brain as opposed to say auditory cortex, which is more difficult to access. It's more like on the side of the head rather than, sort of, rather than the back. It just depends on the shape of the brain or which species you're looking at. Yeah, I guess I've like had, you know, some sort of allegiance to the ears and like auditory processing, just being a music guy. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that you have gone from music to uh, the visual system. And so I'm curious if there's any sort of way that you think that can be unified or if, you know, that's, I, I might just be trying to go for some esoteric way to think about it, but like, uh, does... oh, not at all. Yeah. There is hopefully a beautiful unifying theory of the brain or of the cortex, mm -hmm. which is all that stuff on the outside. Cortex means bark in Greek. It's like the bark of a tree. Uh, <clears throat> and especially in humans, there's been just this explosion of the amount of cortex we have, evolutionarily speaking. And unlike deeper brain areas, which have maybe had the time to evolve and specialize in all these particular ways, the cortex is all evolved so quickly that there's no way that each bit of cortex is gonna, I shouldn't say there's no way, but it very much looks like evolution found some generic computational device and just duplicated it everywhere. 
Interesting. Said, well, if I, if, as long as I just plug in auditory inputs to this area, the, the Turing machine, <laughs> the brain Turing machine will compute auditory stuff. If I plug in visual input, it will just do whatever it is that cortical circuits do. And so our lab really is, and I'm really interested in just what, what is this cortical computation that's occurring uh, possibly everywhere with variations, of course. There's been enough evolutionary time for, the, for there to be variations on the theme to optimize for particular aspects of vision or, or hearing. But <clears throat> basic idea is like, we're studying vision because we can pretty easily control what an animal sees mm. and we can pretty easily record what happens in response to it. So it's a good model system for studying the cortex in general. And so, and actually a lot of the literature that I'm reading to inform what I'm doing does come out of the auditory system. Mm. There are these themes that just kind of keep popping up and we're looking for clues as to what this generic uh, skeletal structure of, of computational or of cortical circuitry is and mm. how it gives rise to a, a intelligence and behavior as we know it. Interesting. Um, I mean, do you have any insight that you can share on that sort of like computation? Sure, I can try. <laughs> um, I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> uh, what, what are some okay. like uh, nearby do or like nearby sort of uh, you know focuses that one would read about? Like if I were to go on a Wikipedia like tab explosion, uh, what would uh, be some terms I look up? Probably uh, cortical circuits. So it might get a little too in the weeds. Um, there's actually a great book by Jeff Hawkins called On Intelligence. And he is, he was, he started his PhD and I think he left at some point in the 80s or 70s or something. He was just not terribly satisfied maybe with the state of data collection or something and he went off and he made the palm pilot and all that okay, stuff yeah. made a bunch of money and then returned to neuroscience in a private capacity and he wrote this book which encapsulates several bigger ideas and how this brain works he, he's a cortical chauvinist like <laughs> uh, several several other virtual figures i don't i don't know he, he's a little bit on the outskirts sometimes Academia can be a little snooty or right. whatever. Who knows if his ideas and his institute is going to shake out and everything, but I think it's great to have theorists. Totally, yeah. Um, have neuroscience is lacking in big theoretical ideas and more people we have working on those kinds of things that can really be put to, put that we can try to find empirical evidence for. That's great. So that book is something that I might check out. It's got a decent description of this idea of hierarchical organization of the cortex. So we've got, let's say, the primary visual cortex, 
It's also the primary auditory cortex, just like the first stage of processing. And what, what happens there gets sent up to a higher area that deals with higher level features. And then that gets sent up to another area that deals with other higher order features. For instance, a cell in the primary visual cortex has something called a receptive field associated with it, which is like, what is the stimulus that drives activity to this thing? What, what is this neuron tuned to? In other words, like mm. what makes this thing resonate? And in the primary visual cortex, it would be just like a little area in the visual field. that's like a little oriented bar. Say it's a black background with a white bar oriented in a particular way. Now, if you, you might think it's like dots of light would stimulate things in the primary visual cortex, but no, that's the retina or the LGN, which is the stopping point on the way to the primary visual cortex. But once you get to the primary visual cortex, you're basically looking at these little bars. If you, if you turn the orientation differently, then it's no longer responsive. Hmm. So the orientation is important. The spatial frequency is important, as in how wide is this bar? Um, is it black on white or is it white on black? These kinds of things. Now, what can you do in a higher cortical area with all this bar extracted information? Hmm. Think about it as like pattern matching. It's okay. a little bit like all this autocorrelation thing we're talking about. You just say, how well does this match, this feature match what's happening in this spot of the visual field? Matches really well, oh, fire. <laughs> and then, so things like that can get synthesized in a higher brain area to form edges, say of a, a square or something. And those edges, maybe you have two edges that meet at 90 degree angles. And that in a higher visual area, they can sort of get combined and synthesized to create like a shape. And so if you measure the activity of cells, as you go higher and higher in the, in the cortical hierarchy, they respond to higher and higher organized things. There, there's this fairly sexy paper, um, sexy and it's like, <laughs> Uh, splashiness and fun, I guess, which is that they basically found cells in they're way higher up in the cortical hierarchy that just responded to Jennifer Aniston's face. <laughs> so it was called the Jennifer Aniston cell. And so like that's how you you imagine like getting higher and higher up in the in the hierarchy to the point where you're identifying particular faces of individuals, regardless of context, they can be facing left, facing right. Um, and that's really a remarkable thing. It's this process of abstraction. Like, mm, totally. How is it that I recognize who you are, regardless of what position you're in? Because just some really naive image recognition algorithm will be like having a hard time with that. It doesn't understand that all these different angles could be looking at the same object. So. Mm -hmm extrapolating what an object is and how it might be manipulated in space in terms of rotation, shading, the light, the context and things like that. So that's a big part of this cortical processing stuff is the abstraction as you move up in this hierarchy. And another big part, especially that, I, that I'm involved in is this idea that based on your previous experiences, 
which could be seconds ago, milliseconds ago, or much longer. You're going to take in your current input and sort of generate what you expect to happen in the near future. Mm-hmm. And um, if if things just sort of happen like like you expect them to, you may not need to pay so much attention to it. It's not uh, perhaps that important. You should just use your mental resources to think about um, what you're going to say on the podcast later or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's no predator in the woods. But if you did see a, a face pop up along the fence where you normally don't see it, then this, this violation of an expectation mm-hmm. gets sort of signaled upwards. So there's this, the brain, the idea is the brain is generating, uh, there's a generative model in which we're, we're always sort of saying, how does this, how does what I'm experiencing now compare to what I expected based on previous experiences? If it deviates, then I should probably notify the higher visual areas or other parts of the brain to say something important has happened and also update my internal model of what I was expecting to happen. So is this that like the Bayesian brain type stuff, like uh, yeah. like the yep. free energy stuff? Gotcha. Yep. Carl Friston um, is big on all this kind of stuff. And he's a originator of the free energy um, <laughs> theories of the brain, as far as I know. Um, so I talked to this guy a while ago, uh, Andres Gomez and Nielsen, and uh, he's you know interested in stuff like that, like the free energy principle. And he did this article about like different models of aesthetic qualia or like uh, different models of art. And one of them was basically to uh, generate predictive coding errors. Uh, and I thought that was interesting like way to think about art. And it made me think of like stand-up comedy where it's like some of the best comedy is like what, you know, makes you have a prediction and then it like violates that prediction in a way that's novel. Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, it, predictive coding is exactly what I study. It's exactly what uh, my experiments are designed to look at. Um, both the aspect of how does the brain adapt during the process of while it's acquiring these experiences to in such a way that sort of suppresses expectation and also notifies of a violation of the expectation and hopefully how that internal representation that is doing the template matching uh, is organized but these are all great wonderful ideas that are sort of central organizing principles. How do a whole bunch of just dumb individual cells (laughs) assemble themselves in such a way that makes this happen? That's really Mm. the, I don't know, billion dollar question. And I'm somewhere, I'm basically in a position where I love all that theoretical stuff. I'm also trying to figure out anatomically what's, what's going on that enables these things to happen. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, we won't necessarily... So there's a lot of ways that you can look at predictive coding, and we need to somehow constrain those theories, accept them, reject them, test them, based on actual physiological evidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sort of... That's where our, my research lies. Interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, when we were talking about, like, uh, vision and, uh, you know, the auditory system, and if there's some unification uh 
I guess I was thinking about like the virtual reality realm, which is going to you know, obviously be more and more uh, like omnipresent going forward. But like if you're in a VR thing and you're in some sort of virtual environment, you can't really experience food, like virtual food, the way that you could like virtual audio or virtual visual input. I'm curious, um, do you think there's any potential for like just swapping out, like if you were to have a virtual soda in a virtual environment, could you somehow like inject auditory or visual input to sort of trick the brain? I mean, something I don't to think so. <laughs> test but That's a pretty interesting idea, but no, I think that the pathways are just going to be too distinct. Okay. Like you, I don't think you could, man, I think you probably need something more like a, a cap that you put on that will stimulate brain areas. Mm, like okay. you have with prosthetics some there are people with prosthetic like robotic arms basically they've got sensors and ways to also stimulate the brain or like mm. the inverse of a sensor it it takes stuff like that can be done coarsely mm-hmm. but when you're talking about uh level of precision required to get something really right mm-hmm. Just stimulating through the scalp is too coarse, um, and we're not really at the point where we are going to be putting electrodes in people's brains to right. to give them a virtual soda. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe for you know, reestablishing vision or something like that. It's always going to be the most severe. Um, deficits and diseases that are going to be right okay. highest priority for mm-hmm. that kind of research and mm-hmm. i think we're kind of on the cusp of it but um it's also just difficult to to access that many neurons in in a, in a highly specific way even if we knew how to do it even if we knew <laughs> exactly how these sort of circuits were working it would still be Uh, really, really hard to get the technology in there to, to stimulate with the specificity that you need for for things like that. Right. Interesting. Okay. I, I also think of this guy, I think his name's Neil something or other. I forget his last name, but he's like a, a famous cyborg and he has like, he's the anglerfish dude. He has like a, some sort of antenna that was implanted uh, in his head. Yeah. And I think he's colorblind and he like replaces some sort of uh, sensory input with like the auditory input and it's uh-huh. just like I, I i can't imagine that i would like switch it up from like colorblind to like standard vision but sure. uh i don't know it's the, that sensory blending thing seems intriguing so yeah just want to mention yeah <laughs> I, I suppose you know that stuff it is it is information mm-hmm. that you could use to learn about your environment and maybe in some really abstract way it might it might fill in but um, yeah, is this a TED talk? I think I might have seen this. Oh, maybe I can yeah. see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it would be. I'm a little out of my depth in, in terms of, <laughs> you know, it's not really my area mm-hmm. of research, so I can only really speculate, but. I would imagine that, so this quality of stuff you're talking about, mm-hmm. 
It's like, I guess I'm saying that you might be able to use your anglerfish thing to <laughs> yeah. generate some auditory information that could be informative, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty doubtful that it's going to generate the experience of color, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the same way, in a way that would be recognizable to a regular, um, you know, a healthy normal or whatever. But I say <laughs> yeah. that with love because I'm also colorblind, but not, oh. not uh, dichromatic like I think this guy might be. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I guess like uh, a few more things. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Uh, so, I mean, so it sounds like optogenetics is not your, like, that's just like something that's happening in the lab as well, or? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a project that actually, so this was a cool experience. When I first started reading about the brain, I was interested in music and music cognition and was reading some papers and there's this guy who was, uh, writing really neat papers about like analyzing speech patterns of different languages in Europe mm. and trying to, there's something called prosody, which is how your voice goes up and down in this particular kind of fashion. And I might go like down at the end of a sentence. But he was trying to sort of relate that to melodic contours and mm -hmm. for, for composers of these different countries. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And he ended up coming to BU couple of years ago and giving a talk and he was talking about parrots and beat recognition and bobbing your head to, to these to beats and humans can do it we can dance most of us and the question was so, so this is a sort of predictive problem also mm -hmm. if you have this these this kind of pattern I know when the next one's going to occur because I've got this memory of the clicks or the rhythm that preceded it. Mm -hmm. So I'm projecting into the future. And that's the part that sort of ties into our lab. So my PI and I, Jeff Kapornik, started talking about this after, after the talk and thought, oh, I wonder, I wonder if these animals like parrots and humans are are we, are they the only ones that are really capable of this kind of temporal processing or are we the only ones that f and find it intrinsically rewarding? Okay. So interesting. Uh, our idea was to basically put a mouse in a box. <laughs> One of the things a mouse does regularly is that it rears up just looking around. So that's a behavior it, it is accustomed to doing. And we said, can we make it so that we give it a little dopamine reward when it rears up in concert with a beat, a rhythmic beat? So maybe it's not intrinsically rewarding to be bobbing your head as a mouse to some click, but maybe we can make it rewarding by stimulating the dopaminergic areas of the brain when it does the, the right things. And we can see you know, if this mouse never learns, then maybe it just doesn't have the circuitry or maybe we didn't do the experiments, right? Or maybe the, you know, the dynamic, it's a different kind of molecule other than dopamine that are involved in these things. But if it does work, <laughs> mm -hmm. then we have a really cool video of a bunch of mice that are like bobbing their heads to, <laughs> to music. And, uh -huh. and so that was, that's the project. 
the, the surgeries involved to make these things happen are pretty time consuming. And I don't particularly love doing that. So we basically sort of, I've sort of walked away from the day-to-day of that and other people will run the experiments and do the surgeries and things. I sort of keep my eye on it from afar, but yeah, the project is called Tiny Dancer and uh, <laughs> maybe it'll pan out. But, uh, Imagining awesome. a little like Night at the Roxbury scene of... Uh, Absolutely. That'd be the best. <laughs> um I guess one note on animal use, though, is is though this stuff sounds uncomfortable or mean or something like that, uh, you'd be amazed at how unperturbed these mice are after these surgeries. It's uh, <laughs> it's like they just have a new hat. Like they wake up and it'll be like nothing has changed. They're fine. Um, so I'm just gonna throw that out there for the. <laughs> For the vegan you're talking to, uh, but I mean, I am vegan, but I'm not actually bothered by what you're saying. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, so, well, you know, it bothered me the idea of working with animals and everything, and I don't want to inflict harm and suffering on motherhood animals. And, uh, but once I saw how kind of robust and uncaring they are about these kinds of manipulations, I felt better about about being involved with it. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm curious if you're interested in sonification of data at all, if that's like something that seems worthwhile. Um, I feel like other people have been uh, sort of bullish on it and other people are disinterested. Man, I haven't thought about that in a really long time. So it's something that I was thinking about more when I was an undergrad and doing research on synchronizing networks. I'm just tired of looking at all these plots of like, hundreds and hundreds of cells and trying to find out patterns. And I thought, oh man, maybe I can just make a little plink, plink every time <laughs> the cell fires or something and try to maybe put them all in a stereo image so you can get some idea. It, but it's not something that I think is optimal over whether or not I could use that in my particular area of research. I'm mostly trying to do statistical tests and model mm-hmm. fitting and things like that. And I'm not I'm not really sure if I could make use of sonification in my particular domain. Mm-hmm. Part of me feels like if you're like, you know, trading stocks or something and you were to speed up the, the waveform and put some pitches on it, uh, uh, you know, if then you could, you know, be more predictive if you did it in a musical way, but that's uh, uh, out maybe. there. Yeah, maybe. So one, one funny, feature of a lot of cells and in the visual cortex, especially in the layer that I'm looking at, is that, you know, I said, there's these receptive fields that you could put up on a screen, some image that might cause a cell to fire, but individual cells, especially the further you go up, don't necessarily encode for some stimulus or feature that robustly mm. so it might only fire you might say yeah this neuron is selective for this kind of thing but it might only fire 10 percent of the time that that thing is there and maybe like one percent when other stuff is there mm. so there's the sparseness and so the idea is that in whole sort of populations of cells in aggregate they'll reliably encode for some some kind of thing but each individual one doesn't necessarily. 
Gotcha. That's kind of an interesting, still kind of an open question as to how all that works. But um, if we're if we're trying to sonify waveforms of individual neurons or something like that, mm-hmm. it might be too sparse for you to extract gotcha. meaningful information. And you really need to do some more population level statistics or something. Interesting. Okay. Um, I guess the last thing I'll ask is like about research and experimentation. Um, I feel like I've never fully appreciated how to, uh, you know, go about research and do science, you know, as it should be done. Uh, so I'm curious, how would one design a solid research question? Uh, and sort of, do you see any interesting areas of low hanging fruit for like artistic or musical research? So I gave this some thought because you put this in the email and I was thinking, boy, that's a tough one. (laughs) Um, Because I feel like for what I do, there's a lot of reading just to determine what gaps need to be filled. Mm -hmm. What has everybody done? What can I, with the tools that I have, do to... uh, to fill in one of those gaps. Now, on an individual basis, it'd be pretty tough. It's tough for me to think of something that would be novel, that would contribute to the field as a whole. However, I was I was thinking about these psychophysics experiments from the 50s and for example, tone discrimination. How you play two tones, did it rise? Did it fall? Is it the same tone? How far apart do two tones have to be for you to be able to discriminate between the two? If there's some white noise in the background, how does that affect your ability to discriminate? If you increase the white noise, it decreases discriminability and all these sorts of factors that were really mapped out a long time ago. Um, there's also memory related things like this. You could say if you get a a list of words, for example, 10 of them, and you're asked to recall which words you heard, mm-hmm. you'll tend to remember the first couple pretty well and the last couple pretty well. So there's like this recency effect, but also at the beginning. So there's all these kind of easy to do psychological experiments or um, psychophysical. Um, and I, I always thought it'd be really cool just to do those on myself, like map out my own curves, mm-hmm. which I think anybody could do, really. You just totally. have to be really careful with your equipment. Make sure that you're using the same settings on your headphones when you, when you do these things. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my answer is I'm not sure what low-hanging fruit would be. Um, in terms of contributing to the overall pantheon of scientific research or psychological research. But I do think anybody could have fun just finding their own individual um, characteristics of their hearing or or vision or whatever. I think that actually, I've I've wanted to do that for a long time. I just never have. And, And also mapping it over time, like just how your frequency rolls off as you age or, mm-hmm. or, Oh, here, here's one. Um, uh, 
try to uh, map out, like we were just doing this click thing, map out how well, how close you are to, how able you are to approximate the next beat as a function of how far the beats are from one another. Okay. So as the tempo slows down, as you know, you're like playing in a really slow tempo, boom, boom. Right. Boom. It can be tricky, right? And we, totally. we learn techniques like subdividing, which is kind of like a way to sort of cheat and to make a, to make a slow tempo into a faster one. Mm-hmm. But try to do something like that for yourself and see if you can uh, see if you can get better at it. See if you can modify the tempo itself and see how quickly you adapt and create your own learning curves. Make make it a non-standard or non-steady tempo, and uh, th- things like that. So, like how how well do you track it? Those could be kind of interesting exploratory questions. Yeah, I suppose you could even like sort of quantify how accurate your sense of rhythm is or something like that or like that's not really research per se but it's like you know self-inquiry yeah yeah uh do you have any sort of like guiding principles for coming up with research questions in general uh good question (laughs) i wish i had a more um, more, I don't know, rigorous <laughs> way or process or, you know, something like an algorithm. Um, I would recommend a podcast. You can edit this out. If you don't want the competition, <laughs> but a podcast called Rationally Speaking. Of Julia Galef? Yep. And there's an episode with Ed Boyden, who's... okay co-inventor of optogenetics along with other things and she asked him something kind of like this and he had much more of an interesting methodical way to think about how you might approach things and how he uh, was able to come up with uh, the ideas that he had and he's he's a brilliant guy and he is better <laughs> a better way of putting these things than i do <laughs> mostly i just sort of bang my head against the wall for a while and then try to step back and think about bigger context and hope something shakes out. There's so many confounds in, in designing like a good experiment that they all individually seem like they're their own beast mm-hmm. sometimes. So it's hard to come up with general principles. For sure. But um, yeah, it's probably about as much as I can say. On that. Well, when I come up with a research question, I'll send it your way, and you can uh, please do yeah, criticize it. <laughs> cool. uh, hey, well, I'll try to punch it up, and we'll like uh, throw it back and forth and see if we can come up with something. I'm all, I love to hear what people come up with and ideas. Yeah, I mean, I should also send you some of the like algorithmic stuff I'm trying to sort out for my music stuff because I'm trying to do this like algorithmic death metal project, and uh-huh. um, I'm just really dedicated right now to figuring out how to slice up a 30 minute span of time into some sort of way that I can like feel good about and then automate it. So I can just continually generate like, uh, you know, structure and form for like one side of a a cassette. (laughs) Right. Uh, So 
Well, I think one kind of fun thing is to, like we were talking about expectation and surprise, and you can quantify surprise. It's, they're, you know, including Carl Freston, who I mentioned before, have formulations for quantifying surprise based on previous experience. It could be kind of cool to try to apply that to your own compositions. Say, oh, there's there's been a lot of regularity for some period of time. Like this could be a good spot for something. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of algorithmic generation interesting well we'll have to read about I mean, what is the way that you call it, qualify uh, or quantify surprise how yeah or is there a term for it or like a some sort of process uh i can send you some papers there's several but one of them that i'm still just kind of working out right now because it's part of my research is comes from more information theoretic approach which is like if you receive some data and it doesn't change your model your internal model of how things are then Mm -hmm. it's not really informative okay and so you could say what is the least informative like we're just doing clap 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 the least informative thing would be the thing that is exactly what you predict to happen next Mm -hmm. so i think that's the intuition is does this piece of information change my internal model of what's happening or is it does it deviate from my expectation and if you can figure out a way to i don't know apply that that idea terms of composition it could be pretty interesting cool well i look forward to reading whatever you send me uh anything you want to say before we close this out uh let's see um i mean there's information on gavornik labs website right i think i saw that uh interval paper and i read the abstract uh about the prediction and stuff um yep um shoot i don't know if i have any closing remarks here just want to give a shout out to my homies and uh any like records you want to sell or anything (laughs) nah my huge audience Yeah, I don't want to sell anything. <laughs> Except for maybe fretboards. Go to Microtone Guitars. Send it, drop us a line. Buy yourself a Microtone Guitar. Who did that logo, by the way? Um, Mike and I worked on the logo together. We had the idea of basically using sine waves, having uh, harmonic, like perfect harmonic ratios. I think it, I think there might be a, a five-fourths one for the perfect third. I can't remember exactly what we did. We basically just kind of tossed. I use my plotting software, you know, my Python and all that sort of stuff to sketch some things out. And I would send it to him in EPS format so he could put it in Illustrator and make it pretty. But you know, it was basically some some fusion of, of awesome. Yeah, I feel like it stuff. looks very much like the sort of like manic scribbles in some of my notebooks. So uh, yeah. where I'm just like <laughs> splitting it into three. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Cool. yeah. yeah I was trying to go for something not too busy, but got the idea across. Cool. 
All right, well, Scott, thanks for joining me. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Adios. Ciao.